Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Salzberg from the WFIU-WTIU Newsroom, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. We're recording the show remotely today to avoid risk of spreading infection. Today, we're doing an update on local plans responding to COVID-19. And we have four guests with us on the studio. A couple of them are return guests. We have Kirk White. Assistant Vice President for Strategic Partnerships at Indiana University. Penny Cottle is the Monroe County Health Department Administrator. And joining us uh, for the first time today are two other guests, Jacques Bell, who is OptumServe Site Administrator in Bloomington, and Shandy Durth, who is Director of Undergraduate Epidemiology Education at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI. You can join us uh, on the program today if you have questions by sending them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, I want to welcome everybody to the program. We've had a lot of questions come into the show, so we'll be uh, trying to get to a lot of those. And I'm going to start with one that came in. And uh, Penny Cottle, it's for you. Uh, Someone just sent in a question, which we had on our list as well. Monroe County has had a big jump in COVID-19 cases in the past two weeks. What do we know about why this is and what is being done to address it? Sure. Uh, Last week, we did have a big jump. And what that really boiled down to was a collection of tests that had been done over a period of time that had not yet been reported. So it wasn't that we had, you know, one or two days where we all of a sudden had um, a large influx or surge of cases. Um, It did have to do in the state health department had reported that that a new lab had uh, reports and and that those were being added. So I think most of those had uh, were attributed to that. Uh, the one thing that I would say too about most of our cases, as I've talked to our public health nurses, is that we are seeing you know more friends and family kind of. Uh, infections and and spread that way right now, as opposed to finding what I'm going to refer to as a hotspot where uh, people have been in a particular place. And what we would like to do is be able to prevent that from happening. Um, And that's why we're still encouraging people to uh, practice prevention and, and assume that they are positive and assume those around them may be positive. Just to follow up quickly, because we have had questions about whether you know you can tell anything from the data about particular hotspots around town. It sounds like you're saying no, that they're kind of coming from all over. Right now, it does appear to be that way. And that's the, the reason that contact tracing is so important, is that uh, those conversations and those investigations can help us identify if that community spread and those kind of hotspots start to, to pop up. Okay, I want to ask, I want to turn to Shandy uh, and ask her about what we're seeing on the statewide level. I know, um, you know, when I watch the, or hear, listen to, or watch the national news, I I see about all sorts of states that are just rising. Indiana doesn't usually make those lists. So what what are the numbers showing for Indiana right now? So right now we're actually stable or flat or decreasing in some areas, which is great. So we're in a sweet spot. And as you said, unfortunately, um, more than 20 states at this point, their numbers are increasing. And so I actually, right before we went on air, I saw that Texas just closed all of their bars because they realize that people are congregating together too much, not wearing masks, and they're seeing their numbers increase. So we want to keep an eye on that here to make sure we're not in that same situation. Okay, so do you think that it's just the the fact that, you know, we have this four-stage plan and that people are here are, are maybe more aware and are, are following the plan? 
I think it was great that the state plan did the reopening mm -hmm. in phases and that our phases were spread out. What we've seen in some other states was that they opened much quicker than we did. Um, and unfortunately, flipping the switch like that saw this jump in cases. So I'm hoping we can avoid that. And I think we've learned a lot over the last three months. And if we start to see cases increase again, I think the governor's office and the State Department of Health has a better idea of what to close at what stage and that sort of thing going forward. All right, we're gonna have much more to ask you about later in the program, but I wanna ask Jacques Bell because we have had probably since we started um, gathering questions, we probably had over a hundred questions about testing. So we're really happy to have you on the air today. Uh, you know, we have very basic information that people still wanna know, which is, you know, can they get a test from OptumServe? Where is the site? Uh, do they have to be symptomatic? Can you just sort of go over the basics? Perfect. Yes, um, absolutely. So anybody that resides or work in Indiana can get tested. You do not have to show symptoms at all to get tested. Um, it's just important to get registered and then we can, we can perform the test. The site is currently in the National Guard Armory that's on 3380 South Walnut. Um, so basically anybody can test it. All ages can be get tested. It's just important if it's 12 and under, they are considered as a minor and they need to get verbal consent. So that registration would have to go through the number they would have to phone. Um, and 13 upwards, you can just go online and register. How long does it take uh, from registering online to actually getting the test done? So you can do a walk-in as well. We do walk-in. So that whole process from phoning in, getting registered, getting tested, you're looking at about a 10, maybe 15 minutes max um, process. So it's very quick, very easy. Um, yeah, it's very... Okay. And then how long does it take to get the test results back? The results are 72 business hours. So within three days, I would say at latest, you'll have the test results. That will get sent to you via text or email that your um, test results is um, ready. You would have to then log on to your LHI.care account in order to view that result. Okay. And we've got, like I said, we have lots of other questions about testing, but I want to bring Kirk White in and give him an opportunity to, to join us um, early in the program. So, Kirk, a lot of people are concerned about the university coming back. You know, you were on the show just a few weeks ago. Has anything changed since we last talked about, you know, is the university um, sticking with the, you know, the, the reopening plan that we talked about then? What are some of the key elements of that? Thanks, Bob. Yeah, it's good to be with you today. And, and I can say that uh, this week we've continued uh, the implementation of a lot of uh, the, the planning that, that started uh, the la over the last month, things that uh, we've announced uh, with the restart plan. Uh, those uh, initiatives are continuing to move forward. Uh, the, the, the overall uh, point of all that is to limit the amount of exposure uh, with our campus uh, and, and the community. Uh, I think uh, this week, we're up to 9,000 of our faculty and staff who have signed the uh, uh, community responsibility agreement that uh, says that uh, we will, as responsible staff and faculty, uh, follow the protocols of hand washing, distancing, and, and face masks. Uh, the uh, Campus is starting to come back to life on a limited basis with uh, some of our researchers and faculty back on campus that need to be. Uh, that will continue as of uh, July the 1st. I think uh, the media has also covered that uh, uh, some of our athletic teams, particularly uh, football and both men's and women's basketball, have started practicing. They're also using very strict uh, protocols uh, with testing and screening. Uh, and so far, uh, that's come up uh, negative, uh, unlike uh, some of the other uh, major institutions in the country, both LSU, I think uh, I saw in Clemson, have, uh, have seen a significant number of their athletes that are testing positive. So, so far, we're doing well, and I, I want to continue those efforts. Uh, next steps for us are to continue coordination with the communities that we serve uh, throughout the state. and. Uh, and bring fully online our 
our screening and testing capabilities uh, for all of our faculty, staff, and students. So, Kirk, one of the things that, that I know we got some uh, questions about was there's a portion of the, the pledge that people are signing when they come back about, about whether they have any pre-existing condi health conditions. Um, is that a voluntary thing for them to sign? And if they sign that they do, what happens? Well, uh, there's a big difference between uh, signing an agreement that says you will, you will uh, follow the community responsibility guidelines. The, the other piece that you may be referring to is if this clicks over into an ADA uh, situation where there are other disabilities. And we have other ways at the university of fully established procedures for folks to, to uh, get uh, the right kinds of support that they need for for uh, ADA, so uh, that's a different uh, category. Uh, but those who feel like they are at at-risk population should work with their dean or supervisor to uh, figure out the best ways to work uh, remotely uh, and and uh, and come to accommodations that we can specifically for uh, the at-risk uh, populations related to COVID. Okay, so before I, I go to uh, another panelist, we had a quick question come in that just asked if you know how many staff there are at IU Bloomington. Do you know how large the staff employment is? Uh, let's see, a, a full, full staff's gonna be about 5,000, uh, but I'll double check that. Um, faculty is about 2,000, so let me get the full numbers. I can get back to you here in a minute. Sure, that was a pop quiz. Thank yeah, you. no kidding. Yeah. All right. Uh, Penny Cottle uh, from the Monroe County Health Department. The uh, other group that's going back to school is the MCCSC, the Monroe County Community School Corporation. And of course, all other, or a lot of other school corporations within our area, but you would be most uh, concerned with MCCSC and the Richland Bean Blossom School Corporation. What's your involvement with those two school corporations as they plan their uh, strategies for going back into the classroom. Yeah, we've been meeting with them. They've both had um, teams of people who have been working on their plans, and we've um, been included in those uh, planning sessions. We've also been working with some of our charter and private schools as well, more of a one-on-one -on -one basis uh, with questions that they have. The Department of Education has really uh, They've set out some guidelines. The CDC has guidelines. The state health department and the DOE are working very closely together, but a lot has been put in terms of the local health department ask them for guidance. And so we're working through a lot of the questions that they have. Most of those are around what happens if a student or, or a teacher is positive and those kinds of things. How will we uh, communicate and, and work around that? So we are... Um, continuing to communicate with them. I have been extremely impressed, um, not surprised at all, but extremely impressed from the beginning um, of the year uh, with the closures and then the reopening. And reopening is, I think, much more difficult than even them closing. And they, they are thinking through this and putting their students and faculty, the, those, the safety of those individuals first and uh, ensuring that they can provide good education for them. So, I, I, you know, as a community member, as a health person, I, I feel very good about the work that they're doing and the plans that they're putting in place. But we're definitely involved in communicating with all of them. The health department does not approve their plans. Um, more we're a resource in working with them as they develop them. Yeah, we had Dr. Judy DeMuth on the program last week and several other people from the school corporation. And they talked about, you know, there's just so much involved in trying to run a school and trying to run it during the pandemic. And I think they basically said they would, um, you know, they would alter their plan if they were going against anything that the health department was recommending. So I think it sounds like they're working closely with you. Yes, and we've we've kind of done a survey. We've been trying to gather questions from all the schools so that um, we can kind of group those and make sure that we're providing consistent messages and that we're not having, you know, 20 conversations sometimes when we can have, you know, two or three. So um, we're 
we continue to work with them and we will throughout throughout the year because all of these plans are very fluid. So I want to ask you and um, Jacques to talk about this next issue, and that is about testing. We had a question come in that asked um, for Monroe County, is the number of positive cases increasing parallel to the increased testing? What is the ratio of positive tests to all tests? Um, the I, you know what? I just I'm in a, a different space. I'm away from my desk. Um, I think right now it is about three point three percent of our tests are positive. Um, I haven't looked at the. I didn't look at the dashboard uh, at noon because we started this call. Don't think that it's going to be much different than that today. And it has really consistently been coming down. Um, it, Occasionally, when we've had these upticks, you know, of a, a couple cases here or there, or last week's um, increase in cases, we saw that percentage go up slightly. But it's it's been holding steady, and that is certainly good news for us. We would expect that with additional testing in town, and as that increases from a variety of sources, uh, we will likely find um, more cases. But we haven't. I think it's been proportional. We haven't seen um, a huge increase. I, if that percentage really starts going up or our rate per 10,000 starts really going up, then I would be more concerned about an increase in, in community activity. Mm -hmm. Jacques, can you? And, uh, yeah, so well, I think as well, what definitely affects this as well, I don't get the numbers at all, so I won't be able to say exact numbers. But what I know for a fact that, you know, our number of tests that we've been doing on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, has definitely increased. And I think definitely with that increase of tests that we're doing, will definitely increase the numbers. So, I mean, we've been uh, going from 200 a week to doing almost 500 a week. Um, so the more we get in, the more we get tested, the more numbers we get in. And I think that also has an effect on the numbers that, that we'll be showing. Okay. And I want to ask Shandy to talk about that same question from a statewide standpoint. You know, there's been a lot of, a lot of discussion about, you know, if, are we doing enough testing? This has been from the beginning. How, how can we do more tests? And if we do more tests, then it's going to show more numbers. What's, what's the percentage like in the state? I mean, are we seeing, is it proportional, the number of tests we're seeing? Um, it is proportional. And so the percent of positive is the important thing here, because as you guys mentioned, the ability to get tested has greatly improved. So we're going to find more cases the more we test, especially now that we know we have so many asymptomatic people out there and we're able to track them down thanks to contact tracing and test them. Um, but what we're not seeing is that percent positive increase, which is great. So the states that are starting to close things again, that is the number that's increasing and that's what's driving them to start to shut down again. So right now we're maintaining low numbers between two and 3% in most of the counties in the state, I believe. We had a follow-up question for Jacques. Um, a person was saying that they tried to sign up at the Bloomington location and was told there was an eight-day wait. Any comment on why that is and is that site only for reservations? Should people who want testing sooner just walk in? So yes, absolutely. We are very full, very booked at the moment. We fully booked up until the next availability is the 6th of July. We do and um, I mean, like I said, the next available is the sick, but if they do want to get tested and they need to test beforehand, we do allow walk-ins. It's just very important for them to get registered beforehand before they walk in and get tested. We cannot see them all conducted if, we, if they have not registered. So if they need to and they want to, we do allow those walk-ins and um, they just need to get registered and we can definitely see them. Okay. And um, Penny, this question is for you. This comes from Brenda Kelly, and she asks, we've actually gotten this from a couple of folks, but if someone is traveling into Indiana from another state that might be a hot spot or have a lot of cases like Florida, do they have to self-quarantine for a period of time? The state does not have that currently in place. Certainly, we would 
advise anyone as as I think we've probably not talked about it a lot, but have included and. Anytime people are traveling, they need to be aware of where they are and what's going in, going on in that community and the places that they visit. And so if you are coming from somewhere that is experiencing high number of cases, whether or not you quarantine, you definitely need to be monitoring. And if you were somewhere where the risk was very high and you weren't distancing, you weren't wearing a face covering, you, you weren't taking those precautions, then quarantining um, and monitoring for symptoms would be a wise thing to do, even though it may not be required at this time. All right, so if you want to join our program today, if you have a question or a comment, please send your question to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And if you uh, follow us on Twitter, you can contact us at Noon Edition. So um, Jacques, I know that there's been some misinformation out there about testing. I mean, what are some of the things that you'd like to clear up about, about the testing procedures? So a lot of people has the impression that we're doing the nasal pharyngeal, which is the one that goes way back. And I just want to clear that it, it's not the one that goes all the way back. It's literally the size of a Q-tip, and we literally go in about it, an inch into the nostril, and then just basically tickle. It's more tickle than anything else, um, and that's the, one of the biggest things. People come in, they're very nervous and agitated, and, like, and I'm like, don't worry, it's not what you expect. It's just a, a size of a Q-tip, and we're literally just going to tickle your nose. That's it. Okay. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of questions about that. Some people have called it... Uh... You know, a, a disturbingly intrusive test. They want to make sure that that's not the one you're doing, and it is, is not the one you're doing. That's good. no, it's not. Okay, good. Uh, we've had a lot of other questions about, uh, again, about testing and all other things. We talked about contact tracing a little bit earlier, and I guess I want to ask. Uh, I guess it would be Penny first, and then Shandy you know, about contact tracing and in Monroe County and in the state of Indiana. I mean, how, how well is that program going and what, what are you learning from it? Well, Can certainly, you, yeah. yeah, it's, it's different during the pandemic. And when the state health department decided to really help all the local health departments by managing and hiring um, a group to do the contact tracing just for COVID-19, that then frees up our public health nurses locally to focus on the other communicable diseases that they're still seeing. Those don't go away during a pandemic, but it also allows them to focus on COVID-19 areas where additional work needs to be done. So it is a new process, and I think with anything that's new, there's a few uh, you know, obstacles to overcome, and it continues to become uh, more efficient and productive and communication continues to increase and, and be better. Uh, but it allows us, the system will allow us again to communicate with those tracers and the investigations so that we can look for and get alerts on any kind of hot spots or commonalities um, or people that maybe they are unable to, to reach and we might be able to locate those individuals and do the start the investigation. We covered this last time you were on the program, but I just wanted to to ask again, just to get the answer out there. But we do get a lot of calls from people that say, well, hey, how can I become a contact tracer? But the state is handling all that, correct? The state is handling all of that. And they're, they've put in place several... Um, I mean, the training, uh, there's several different parts to that training. It is very focused on COVID-19. Um, and it, most of them, they are people who have psychology or health backgrounds, as I'm understanding it. Uh, most of them have bachelor's or above uh, degrees. So they've they've really tried to select people who... Um, have done interviews before who understand public health and um, how to deal with people. So um, 
they really tried to get the best of the best, and I know that they had lots of applications. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. We're talking about COVID-19 and reactions to it, how the state is doing right now, how Monroe County is doing right now. We have four great guests with us uh, here to talk with you and with us about it. Kirk White, the Assistant Vice President for Strategic Partnerships at Indiana University. Penny Cottle, the Monroe County Health Department Administrator. Jacques Bell from OptumServe. He's the Site Administrator in Bloomington and Shandy Durth, the Director of Undergraduate Epidemiology Education at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can also send questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Shandy, I was, uh, I sort of didn't let you answer that last question, but uh, if you would, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Sure. No, I think Penny's done a great job. I think she did an awesome um, job of explaining why the contact tracing help that was brought in helps free up time for the public health nurses at the local level. Um, my understanding at this point is the Indiana State Department of Health has uh, about 600 contact tracers. So as soon as they result, receive that lab result in Indiana, and we have a great automated lab reporting system here in the state, um, they then start making those initial contacts. And for those people who they're not able to contact within the first 48 hours, that information is given to the local health department and the local health department can start making their own attempts at notifying that person, getting some more information. And then all of the data collected is shared with the local health departments as well. And I believe the state just released a great um, report this week. I think they're referring to it as the places report to help the local health department see potential clusters. So again, right now is a great time to be doing good thorough contact tracing. Our numbers are low enough that hopefully we could catch any hot spots early on and kind of stamp those out be before they become a huge problem. So what have you noticed during this um, pandemic? Uh, I assume the things that you thought you would see that would help spread the disease are the things that are spreading the disease, but have there been any surprises to you as you've watched this unfold? Uh, there are. I've been in public health for a long time and worked outbreaks for a long time, and I love my children, but I am the first to say that children are often the ones who help spread the cooties faster than anyone. <laughs> and um, actually, some data is coming out now to say it looks like the kids might not get it as easily as we thought, and maybe they're not spreading it as much as we thought. And so that's part of the reasoning behind, let's go ahead and open up the schools. What we're really concerned about are these adults in the, the 20s and 30s maybe that are congregating together more, maybe they're spreading more. Um, some of that data is still coming out. And then there have just been surprises of the degrees of the symptoms that we see. We have such a high percentage of people who are asymptomatic who may be spreading it. So that's definitely alarming. Um, I've told many people that this is one of the hardest viruses that I've seen out there. It's just very hard to uh, wrap your brain around. It's developing differently every day from what we see with the information coming out. Sarah? We got another question for you. This is from Teresa. She says, if a person tests positive and follows the 14-day quarantine, will they test positive ever again? This might be a better question for Jacques, but my understanding is we are seeing some, um, it's rare, but some individual cases where people continue to test positive later on. It's not necessarily saying that they are infectious, but something is going on with that particular person. So Jacques, could you answer that one better? Um, not directly, but the best is also depending on the type of test that's been done, I would say. So if you just do a current test to see if you're currently positive or negative, I don't think it will bring up or show later on unless if you've conducted it again, if you contracted it, sorry, again. Um, but as I would say the biggest thing is the, the type of test that has been done. So we've, we've heard a lot about different kinds of tests, but mainly we've heard about, you know, just testing to see if you have it, but we've also heard about antibody tests. Are, are those tests being done at any, in any numbers right now? So no, we don't do any of the antibody or the plasma, none of those. We just do the current nasal swab to show if you're currently positive or negative. Um, there's no word to say that we will be doing it in the later stage. Um, so I've, I've no information about that if we will be, but at this moment, we're not doing that at all. We're just doing a current positive or negative test. Okay. Well, Penny or Shandy, antibody tests, are they a good way to help figure out this pandemic and get everything back to normal? 
So I can answer that a little bit. The Fairbanks and ISDH study that's been occurring around the state. So the sampling that's been happening throughout Indiana, um, that has included tests for both active infection and also the antibody test. And the antibody test is what's given us a heads up as to how much this had actually spread around the state before we knew this was a thing. They did a second round of sampling recently and those results were released last week. And so that's what's able to tell us how much this is spread. And so that piece of information is critical because as we move forward, we need to go back and check some people to see how long do the antibodies last? Does that mean they have immunity going forward? And then that gives us an indication of how many people might be susceptible in a next wave. And also once we have vaccination available, how would we prioritize those people? If we know you already had COVID say summer of 2020 and we have a vaccine this winter, would you still be at the top of the list or not? That's something that we need to determine going forward with more laboratory data. Sarah? This question is for Penny. This is from Byron. Um, it says that he follows the stats for several counties in addition to Monroe, but he says, while we here in Monroe County have a relatively low rate of confirmed cases, the number of deaths per confirmed cases is clearly higher. And um, he says in some cases much higher than in several other locations with which I'm familiar. Any explanation for that? Do we have a more severe form of the virus locally? Is our healthcare less effective? Any other explanation? Penny? Like Penny's, Penny's muted, so. Okay, there. there. there I was there having go. trouble with my with my <laughs> mute button. There Sorry about that. Um, well, I, really, when we look at some of our other surrounding counties, um, and you look at even the rate per, you know, ten thousand um, deaths, then um, it's it's lower than some counties. Certainly, um, it is higher than than some other counties that may have done a lot. Uh, or, you know, done a lot more testing, had a lot more positives, um, that kind of thing. One of the things that I would say is we've had a lot of positives across all ages, but all of our deaths have come in people who are over the age of 50, and 70% of them have been 70 years or older. And we know that the risk of death does increase with age, um, so that may play a part in that. I, I will say, and I'll take this opportunity, you know, we, we look at those numbers and we, we talk about public health in Indiana and how it um, isn't necessarily funded really well. And I, so I will take this opportunity to say that I would love to have an epidemiologist on staff in our local health department. And I think every local health department would love to have an epidemiologist that was on staff that could spend their day looking at and drilling down at uh, some of those questions in terms of why. You know, when we look at the number of tests that are done per 10,000 people, for example, um, it, our numbers are a little lower than some of the other counties. And so why is that? And I can come up with some different ideas and thoughts about that, but it would be nice to have somebody who could really spend their time and investigate those particular things, whether we're in the middle of a pandemic or we're, we're just doing more routine things. So Kirk White, we were talking before about the fact that uh, children are maybe not spreading it as rapidly and the spread is perhaps coming from people in their 20 to 30 year old age bracket. Well, that's kind of the sweet spot for Indiana University in a lot of ways. A lot of the questions that we get are a lot of the, they're not so much questions as they are just concerns about uh, the university has a lot of control over what's done on campus and in classrooms and in student housing. But, you know, what, what can you do to help make sure that the students are paying attention and wearing masks and social distancing and not hanging out at all the bars when they're off campus? Bob, that's a good question. And let me start by backing up for a minute. Uh, I looked up our numbers and I was a little off, but it's uh, it depends on whether you add full-time and part-time and all that. But uh, full-time faculty 
at Bloomington is about 2,800. Administrators are about 400 and staff is 5,700. So our total full-time staff at the Bloomington campus is about 8,900. Uh, so that's, uh, of course, that's a, a big footprint. Yeah. And we expect to have uh, a student population of over 40,000 uh, uh, this fall. So a relevant question. And uh, we are taking the, uh, as you mentioned, we've got, we've got the control and the, the attitude to be very serious about this on campus. And our hope is, is that we're going to be able to do a good enough job of education that the, our students will, will feel as though they have a responsibility uh, to protect themselves and the rest of the community when they're off campus as well. And we are starting to work with the, uh, the business community, uh, local government leadership. Uh, in fact, I was just uh, working on an initiative about that this morning where we're, we're, gonna, we're going to try to do a better job of, of a communications and uh, effort so that we raise awareness of why this is important. No matter where you came from in the world, this is how we want to do business in Bloomington because it's best to be able to do some business as opposed to none at all. And I just uh, read this morning that uh, our colleagues up at University of Wisconsin, that uh, the, the Madison, Wisconsin area uh, up there, uh, the, the health department has decided to limit gatherings to 10 people and eliminate or at least uh, prohibit for the time being any stand-up in bars in places like that. So we may get to a point like that where if we don't get the word out and people aren't paying attention, we got to do something else to get uh, to ma maintain the safety of our community. We've had questions about uh, fraternities and sororities as well. What's the relationship between the university with the fraternities and sororities? Can you Do you have control over what they're doing this fall? We have some. They are student groups, and so they are uh, uh, they are uh, a subject to university disciplinary action. Uh, so we, just as we expect them to act responsibly and follow the rules when it comes to uh, other health and hygiene and safety issues. Uh, for example, we re we do fire inspections at the at the fraternities and sororities. Uh, we would expect them to. Uh, to maintain the same standards uh, in the rest of their activities as well. And we realize this is gonna be a challenge. I know there have been times when there've been you know, deans of students who have you know, gone out on late night uh, visits to fraternities and sororities to see if they're having big parties. Do you expect things like that to go on? You know, I haven't talked to uh, our dean of students about that, but uh, I know that he's considering as is his team, the best ways to do this in a responsible manner. And uh, I, I know that uh, the campus administration is committed to keeping us safe. So I would expect that, that whatever they need to do to make that happen, it'll get done. All right. We're about 15 minutes till the end of our show. If you have questions or comments, please send us the questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can send your uh, send your questions or comments also to Twitter at Noon Edition. So the the issue we've we've had a show on nursing homes, and I guess uh, Penny, if you could expand a little bit, you were talking about the age brackets where people have died or where people have uh, contracted the the disease. Do you have any local data about nursing homes? How are you handling that locally? Sure. Well, the three things I guess I would say about um, nursing homes, the, the reports go directly to the state. And when we get that, we don't necessarily know offhand in terms of a report, this is the number for this facility, this is the number for this facility. And so that is in part, only in part, why we haven't tried to um, give that information because we don't really feel like we have it in a simple report that we can feel is accurate. Um, but we also, with communicable diseases, we don't, uh, we don't give out addresses of people and, and things like that. 
certainly the in terms of nursing homes, our nurses do communicate with them. We have provided PPE, personal protective equipment to facilities and answered questions and worked with them as they need. The state health department has strike teams that they call them that can assist with testing um, and also do assessments. So if a facility um, has a case, whether they have one case or three and they're concerned about are they doing the, the correct things are there things they could do better? I know that the state has done site visits with various facilities uh, across the state uh, to be able to help them identify improvements that they can make, or to be honest, to also help them feel confident that what they are doing is, is good, even if they're in a challenging time. Certainly with nursing home and long-term care facilities of all types, assisted living, um, group homes, uh, oftentimes people are there for short-term stays, there, some are there for long-term stays, they may actually be residents of another county, so their numbers may be counted there as opposed to here, and those things complicate um, that reporting system as well. You know, in terms of just reporting across the board, um, times like this, unfortunately, or fortunately, I, I'm not sure I, unfortunately that we're in a pandemic, the fortunate thing that sometimes comes out of crises is that we find new and better ways to do things. And so I, I'm hopeful that we might come out of this with a new or better way to communicate and reporting and provide various data to people. Penny, if you can start by answering this question and then maybe Shandy can chime in too, but this is from John and he's asking, are we expecting a resurgence here like we're seeing in some other states? And if so, can you comment on what the plans might be another shutdown or something like that? And then he wants to know also if there will be financial aid for small businesses, but I don't expect you're in the best position to answer that part of it. Yeah, the finance part, I, I can't answer. Um, it, certainly, we have to plan for a resurgence. Um, we hope that people will uh, continue to practice good hand washing and uh, frequent cleaning and will stay home if they're sick, that they'll monitor for symptoms, that they'll wear those face coverings when they're in public, that they'll maintain social physical distance. I you know, probably physical distance is a better term than social distance. Um, those things we know are helpful. And I believe that that's in part why our numbers have been pretty good, uh, not perfect, but good in comparison to other places. If we let our guard down, then we are more likely to have increases and more infection. We certainly don't want anyone getting sick, but we certainly don't want people hospitalized or dying. And we don't want to overburden our, our healthcare system. So we need people to take their responsibility in this very seriously. And that's a part of the plan. Now, what changes might happen? We do not want to have to shut things back down. We know that that's difficult um, emotionally and mentally for people, as well as financially for people, um, but we that could happen. And so it's very important that we all do our part so that we don't have to do that. It's also why we feel like it's important to look for those hot spots and those commonalities among cases that if we can identify, for instance, it doesn't matter if somebody went to a bar if or if they went to a wedding reception or they went to some other festival, large gatherings are where people are close together, they're not wearing face coverings, uh, they're just places to easily spread infection. And if we identify those, if it's a business uh, as, or an event, then we can address that event or that business, hopefully. And um, decrease our cases and reduce the spread. So with contact tracing, the idea is that you're going to contact those people who may have been direct contacts, likely exposed and could be infected, 
and make sure that they quarantine and monitor for symptoms. So we will use all of those things um, and every tool that we can um, to deal with any increases that we see. Hopefully we can avoid a surge, but um, no crystal ball here. Mm -hmm. Sandy, just looking at some of the other states that are experiencing a surge, can you sort of um, talk about how we might know that Indiana is, you know, on the cusp of a resurgence or anything like that? Is that possible? Uh, yes, because we track the data on a regular basis. And I've got to emphasize the fact that we're not out of the first wave necessarily. I mean, the virus is still there. I think we've been able to keep the numbers low because of the social distancing or the uh, physical distancing that we implemented in some of the closures. Um, but with everything reopening in the next few days across the state, I wouldn't be surprised to see an uptick in numbers there. I think what we're seeing in the other states at this point, 18 states have mandated mask use. So I think that's something that our state could look at. Do we start mandating mask use in public places? Um, and if not at the state or local level, at least at the business level where businesses require it. Um, and I mentioned earlier in the call that Texas had closed bars. I just saw that Florida has now closed bars. So again, Penny mentioned those places where you're inside, you're clustered close to other people. Um, it's just not the best place to be right now because uh, transmission likelihood is just so high. So we need to really emphasize the need for additional education. It's not gone. It's still here. The virus is not going to respect state borders. And as we see the other states getting increased cases, I fully expect us to see increased cases as well. Now is the time we need to take action and implement some more measures such as more mask use. And unfortunately, I'm not seeing great mask use right now. Do we have any evidence that the protests in the last couple of weeks have added to the spread? Actually, what I'm seeing from the data is that those protests have not added to the spread. Fortunately, many of the protesters were wearing masks. Mm -hmm. And so the thought is uh, that probably helped protect a lot of people. We have uh, another question about mask use. It says, uh, and this is from the, the Monroe County Health Department. Do you is there a requirement that masks are used in medical facilities, like for non-COVID consults or treatment? Well, IU Health could, could probably expand on that more than I can. I know that they are requiring face coverings and masks. Um, actually, I think masks um, in all their facilities. There for a while, they, they were using face coverings. So um, all of the there are different requirements for different places, and that will change as we move through the state's stages as well. And that's as we look at our local order, you know, we've kind of uh, been moving a little bit slower here than the state. We've tried to move forward with Indiana, uh, but we've been limiting our gathering sizes and things like that. Um, so we'll continue to look at that next week and anxiously await what the governor's uh, next order will look like so that we can um, plan and, and adjust around that. As you know, we can be more strict, we can't be less. And so we don't want to put out an order that then automatically um, the governor would decide to change something that we then um, you know, we're in conflict with. And so we want to wait until we see what he's going to do. I think I said at the beginning of this, um, perhaps that we don't get advance notice. So the governor doesn't tell us ahead of time what's going to be in that order. We get that information the same time everyone else does. So um, we're working on what we think will be in that plan. And we expect that we will move forward with still more caution us, you know, group size will probably increase, but not to the extent that it will match the state. And so we'll have to look at, you know, how long that lasts and what else we may or may not need to do. Okay, we only have a few minutes to go. So uh, Jacques, I wanted to give you an opportunity once again to just give people the basics about uh, getting tested, because we, and we've gotten a lot of questions about that. So the basics of getting tested is definitely uh, go online, register, or call in. Um, the number they can call to get registered is 
1116. And then if they want to visit online to get registered, it will be lhi.care forward slash COVID testing. So basically very important, they need to first register in order for us to do the test. Um, if they want to do a walk-in and they need to be seen earlier than what we have available, we can definitely accommodate them. Um, then it's, like I said, it's a, just a nasal um, swab. It's not a nasal feral gene. It's a very easy, very simple test. Uh, it's contactless. It's also very important. A lot of people also was concerned about, you know, going to a testing site and maybe potentially getting it from that side or at a testing site. I just want to clear that up. Like the precautions that we take on site is very severe. We, there's, it's a contactless experience all the way through. The only thing that will be in contact with you or does get in contact with you is the, the Q-tip that's been used. Okay, and very quickly, Kirk White, is there anything that uh, residents of Bloomington can do if they, or should do if they see a bunch of students doing the wrong thing out there. A bunch of people can, should we contact the Dean of Students office? Should we just address the students directly? Well, I think uh, it's a good idea for all of us to, to set a good example and uh, to kind of hold one another in check. Uh, when I'm out uh, uh, in the community and uh, I, I make it an effort to, to move myself six feet away even if the person headed towards me is coming in a straight direction, that's particularly true when I'm out running and that type of thing. I'd appreciate if both people kind of gave a little bit and realized the respect that we need to have for one another. And that's true with students as well. Uh, they're learning, uh, they're young adults. And uh, I think uh, as we work together with one another, uh, we need a community uh, atmosphere on this. All right. Now, of course, if students misbehave, yes, uh, they should certainly, <laughs> okay. certainly get in touch with the Dean of Students Office. I appreciate it. Thanks, Kirk. We're out of time. That was Kirk White from Indiana University. We've also been joined by Penny Cottle from the Monroe County Health Department, Jock Bell from OptumServe, and Shandy Durth from the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI. For producer Benta Boutier, my co-host, Sarah Whitmire for producer John Bailey, engineers Mike, Matt Stonecipher and Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.